0: The world's wind industry is gathering in melbourne this august join them at the apac summit to discuss collaboration market building and solving supply chain challenges in the expanding apac market buy tickets at apac 2023.com.au hello listeners stuart molland here i'm the chief operating officer at the global wind energy council and we are pleased to present yet another in the series of the APAC Offshore Wind and Green Hydrogen Summit, which has taken place in Melbourne from the 29th to the 31st of August, 2023. And on today's program, we have Mark Labon the co-lead of offshore wind development program at the World Bank, uh, and most people would know Mark from his work with the ESMAP program and the World Bank. And Mark is, uh, has always been at these offshore wind conferences for as long as I've been there. I think, uh, Mark, how you doing?
1: Doing good, thanks, Stuart. To be with you.
0: So, for those people that might not be familiar with the World Bank's efforts in the offshore wind space, uh, can you give us, give the audience a little bit of a background into the World Bank and then maybe the Airsbat program as well?
1: Absolutely. So we started this program about four years ago uh, with the sole intention of helping developing countries to accelerate the uptake of offshore wind. So bringing offshore wind into their policies and strategies and and helping them then to to develop bankable projects and actually start delivering offshore wind. Um, And it's been a, a big success. In those four years, we've been we've been working on this. We've now worked with over 24 country governments, uh, ranging from small island states all the way up to countries like India and Vietnam.
0: And so, the roadmap programs are one thing, uh, but you're you're sort of in the process of rolling these out now. Like you're, these are starting to mature. Can you give some indication of some of the parameters that you look at as part of these programs, and maybe also talk about the the uh, I guess your broader remit to bring these markets to life.
1: So the the roadmaps really have been the start of the conversation with these governments, and and they've been pretty strategic, overarching, broad documents that look at all the different elements that that go into an offshore wind market, and have have really tried to help get governments thinking about the things that they need to consider to start an offshore wind market and actually start getting their their buy in and their um, their interest in developing offshore wind. It's really helping them to set a strategy and a target to say this is the direction we want to go in and, and this is what we want to have as a contribution from offshore wind. And those have, have been published now for four countries. Um, so that's Sri, uh, Vietnam to start with. Uh, we've worked with Azerbaijan, Colombia, and the Philippines as well. Uh, we've got one just about to come out with Sri Lanka um, and then others with, with India. Uh, South Africa and Brazil. Um, but importantly, those give a, a sort of a, a shopping list really of of the next steps and the sort of the things that the government needs to do if it wants to to implement offshore wind. And that's really what we're moving into a lot now is, is the some more detailed technical assistance of setting up regulatory frameworks and putting in place legislation and designing competitions and marine spatial planning to grid analysis and planning long term transmission port development, so all these different elements that they need to think about. And ultimately, as as the World Bank, we're, we're able to provide and, and bring in financing to support this, uh, whether it's the sort of grant funding to do this technical analysis, but, but really the, the big money that's going to be required for things like transmission and ports and infrastructure upgrades. And then on the IFC side, it, it would be bringing in private sector capital to, to sort of encourage uh, international lenders and, and local banks and things to come in and, and actually finance these projects as well as the supply chain. So it's quite a, a broad uh, approach and, and we have a lot of things we could bring to bear to, to help countries deliver. I
0: think uh, those points were very well articulated in the key factors report that you guys did and I think that was that seems to become the reference document for anyone any new market that's considering offshore wind it's a quite a solid piece of work there that that really outlines some of the challenges that countries have to work through or should be starting to think about at least as if, if they want to enable and quickly enable their offshore wind market.
1: Yes it was um very difficult document to write because there are so many different things to consider sure. and to try and get that in a condensed uh, digestible format with you know all the different references you need that policymakers need to, to use to make sort of informed decisions based on other people's work and practices it's it was difficult but I think we came out with something that's it's useful and people ref, refer to quite frequently and I think it does hope I hope it does convey that, that offshore wind is very different from other technologies. And this is a, a big challenge we, we, we face to start with in, in our discussions is this isn't just onshore wind in the sea. It's it's a very different approach that governments need to take. And it requires a, a lot more government uh, support and intervention to make it successful.
0: So from, from where you sit, when you talk about those at least four markets that you mentioned from the APAC area, the uh, uh, Sri Lanka, India, the Philippines and Vietnam, we are hoping to have uh, representatives from all of those countries at the APAC summit and uh, and you guys are working with us to help uh, uh, realise that. Can you give us a, or give the listeners a bit of an indication as to how you see these markets and what the status of these markets are at the moment?
1: So each of these markets doesn't have any offshore wind installed and operating yet, perhaps with the exception of Vietnam which has got some, some near shore wind that it is operating. But that's say it's a little different to the the large-scale offshore wind that we're really thinking about here. Um, So I think in all of those cases that they're still at the early stages of uh, establishing their markets, putting that regulatory framework in place and and bringing in the private sector. Um, Some are more advanced than others maybe, so we've got targets now for for each of those countries, we've got um, the private sector really, really uh, involved now in the Philippines with with over 60 projects and sites being awarded, uh, developers starting to spend money on their, their activities, but still a lot of elements of that regulatory framework and, and the development process are still uncertain, so they're working through that. Um, but as I said, we're, we're now also working on, on the longer-term planning of this industry and all the things that need to go al- alongside the offshore wind projects, particularly on on the infrastructure and things like grid and ports. Um, and I, I think it's important to for them to consider how they fit within the wider APAC setting, really, because sure. they're, they're, they're in a similar place to some of these other new offshore wind markets. If you're looking at, at Korea and, and Japan, you know, they are starting their offshore wind journeys. They're a little bit more advanced so that these countries can also learn from what they are doing and the, the challenges they're facing and how they're overcoming it. So um, I think this, it's really good to have this APAC event to try and actually have those conversations and start sharing some knowledge.
0: Yeah, so you mentioned a couple of things there that we are very keen to have discussed during the conference. One is this idea of thinking of individual markets in the APAC region as part of a broader APAC region, I guess. you know what What's your role in the region? And the second thing is the supply chain and how do we make sure that these developer-led markets where you get, you know, like developers wanting to get in and do early market development and, and that you see that there's great opportunities for development. But how do we do this in a way that we bring the supply chain along with us and to bring the economic opportunity and value for each of these markets and to get these countries to, I guess, realise that while, they might, might, while it might not be possible to have every piece of the supply chain in-country, but there's enough... Economic value to go around. Do you have these conversations with these emerging markets, or how do you how does the World Bank deal with those challenges?
1: Yes. So offshore wind isn't just about the electricity produced. It's it's usually about supply chain and value added and economic benefits. And we've seen that in in every single offshore wind market I think to date. It's it there's a lot more of a dimension to this and and a political dimension to it rather than just here's some more renewable electricity and and I, th- I think you you completely agree with your comment on can't um, bring everything into a, into one country you can't produce the whole value chain and have a competitive value chain within a, a single country um, so therefore there needs to be that sort of regional view of what are the opportunities across that area for the supply chain um so if you're looking at one country in isolation, it might only have an ambition of. 10 20 gigawatts let's say that's very different so if you combine all those markets together looking at the same timelines and actually if you look at the four countries that we're supporting they've got targets of about 80 gigawatts by 2040 wow. just those four countries yeah yeah and if you then add that to japan korea and china you're starting to look at a really big opportunity in that region um bringing in an australia as well and and you've got some some you know very big carrots to bring in the supply chain and, and get uh, investments uh, and commitments to, to come actually set up in the region and and set up their little hubs to to work out of.
0: Yeah, it, it's something that we hope that our people are aware of, at least, and these are the things that we're talking about. This particularly becomes relevant in the Australian context where... I guess if you look at the countries we just mentioned, you can kind of cluster some of these countries together geographically. might not be politically, uh, they might not share the same political ideology, but at least, you know, you can cluster geographical proximity, whereas something like Australia and New Zealand that has the geographical distance as well, that, that adds challenge to that. I'm not sure, you know, maybe it's we'll see something in India and Sri Lanka where there's a, a common or a shared supply chain or whatever. I'm not sure if that's something that you know if those countries are looking at that.
1: Yeah, so actually India and Sri Lanka have, have recently signed a, a joint sort of economic partnership or strategy that they're looking at uh, across lots of different sectors, but but clearly mentioned in there is this intent to collaborate on offshore wind. Sure. Uh, I expect that that will be you know, partly on supply chain, but there's also the mention of, of this new interconnector was wow. being planned between Sri Lanka and India. So that would be a trade of, of power, which is going to be mutually beneficial. But um, yeah. whilst I suppose markets could be geographically close together, which obviously you know, you've got those obvious geographic clusters, I don't think we're necessarily restricted anymore just to thinking very, very much locally. It's This is a, definitely an international industry. We've seen you know, components going all around the world recently with you know, jackets for sea green going from you know china and the middle east up to scotland and turbines coming from denmark across to taiwan so it's it, we're not just thinking of just very very locally geographically anymore it's, it's, it's a, these are big opportunities and yeah we ho- a long way.
0: we hope so i mean we hope that there's certainly when you look to the forecasts of the volume that's coming Uh, this side of 2050, there's certainly enough work and there's certainly enough volume in the markets to, there's going to be enough work for us to do without having to sort of adopt parochial approaches, which could be restrictive in a a way, particularly when we think about things like vessels and, you know, know, I guess factories, et cetera. You know, these are going to be some big challenges that we need to to sort out. If I go back to your program, when we look at some of the common challenges like things like you know where we see grids and ports and infrastructure how do developing countries deal with these type of challenges where you've got the maybe the uh, the added pressure of not having the same economic resources as some of the developed nations how, how does is there a, a challenge there or is, is, do we, do we look to to the private sector for finance or is this is where the world bank and ifc step in it,
1: it is where we step in and and grid is an issue in every country, and let's face it, everyone's got a a challenge with with the energy transition and going to to variable renewables that are all over the the country. Um, In developing countries, the grid needs to be upgraded in in a pretty excessive way, and and usually the grid is owned and operated by a public utility. Sometimes that utility is heavily indebted and and struggling and, and needs supports to to raise funds by itself or or, or, or you know, provide or be provided by, by by loans from concessional sources to try and reduce that that cost to the the public. So that's certainly something that, that is is very sweetly within our, our capability and it's something we, we do a lot of um in terms of supporting transmission. Ports tend to be a mixture of public and private depends on, on the country. And, and again, that's something that we can support is, is bringing in capital to, to upgrade those ports with a sort of strategic view of, of looking at much longer term than, than maybe the government would um, if it was just considering its, its sort of immediate needs for what that port has to do, because this is a long term opportunity and, and people do need to think about this in a set in a different way to, to other technologies.
0: Yeah. So if we look ahead to the conference now, um, what are some of the topics that you'd like to see being discussed, or what do you think is really relevant for discussion at in the APAC context?
1: Well, so for for me, the the collaborative approach is is high priority and. I think that starts with, with educating these different markets on what is happening in, outside of their own country because often policymakers and decision makers and things that they're just so blinkered and, and looking at the challenges that are facing them and what's right in front of them at that moment, that they it's easy for them to lose sight of what's happening in, in the region and even their next door neighbour. So I think taking that sort of approach to say, look, this is what's happening here and around the the region. Um, Is useful as a starting point to make them aware of, of this other other activity, but then also to to try and encourage that sharing of lessons and experiences. As I said, that many of these countries are all at a very similar stage of of progress and development, and they're all, you know, learning lessons. They're all realizing things that, that they could have done in a better way. Or, or, or you know. but there's a lot that can be shared there in terms of knowledge. Yep. And, and i think they can they can help each other by having those conversations and and, and i hope some of those conversations are open and, and frank because it's it's often very difficult to have those but if we can encourage that that would be that would be brilliant
0: well let's hope so and we, we looks like we're going to have a fairly solid delegation from uh vietnam and the philippines and I, I know that we're still working on a couple of others from sri lanka and india as well so i hope that these are. Uh, Bear fruition or bear fruit over the next you know week or so so we've got a, a strong delegations from each of these four countries that, that the World Bank are, have been championing along the way it seems like it's a really critical time these next 12 to 24 months in order for us to I guess send signals to the supply chain to give them the business case certainty to make the investments it's actually going to be able to realize some of these projects as we come up to the back end of the you know, 2020s uh, and early into the early 2030s. So I hope that uh, I hope that we can have a very fruitful and lively discussion with uh, the delegations that the World Bank bring to Melbourne. Thank you very much for joining us, Mark. I very much appreciate your time today, and look forward to seeing you in Melbourne.
1: Thank you very much, Stuart. I'm looking forward to it. See you soon. So hello, my name is Mark Laybourne and I co-lead the World Bank's Offshore Wind Development Program. And I'm really looking forward to the, the APAC Offshore Wind Green Hydrogen Summits in Melbourne in a few weeks time, um, particularly to bring delegations from the countries that we the World Bank have been supporting on offshore wind from uh, India, Sri Lanka, Vietnam and the Philippines, and really encouraging some of the collaborative discussions on the different markets and the lessons learned and how these countries can work together with the supply chain and the industry to make offshore wind a success in their countries.